Hello and welcome to another episode of Right Care at Baptist. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. And I'm Amanda Comer. I'm a nurse practitioner and the system director for advanced practice providers. And today we are recording an episode on the Mid-South Miracle podcast with Nick Ferris and Dr. Raymond Osero-Giagbon um, here to talk to us about uh, about the program and what they've been able to do over the last few years. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Jake. Nice to be here. Uh, thank you for, very much. Yeah, for the audience, uh, do you all mind just telling us a little bit about your background uh, and what you do for Baptist? Uh, Nick, let's start with you. Sure. Um, my name is Nick Ferris. I serve as the director of thoracic oncology for the Baptist Cancer Center here in Memphis. Um, I've been working with, uh, within the lung cancer department for uh, this will this is year 10 for me. Uh, so for the, for the last decade, um, much of that time I spent on the research side, uh, working with Dr. Otero Gagbone uh, to develop the research program uh, and infrastructure that we have now. And then a couple of years ago, moved into the director position on the operations side. Yeah, and I'm Ray Osaragagma. I'm a thoracic medical oncologist here at Baptist. Um, been with Baptist since 2011, uh, when we moved from the University of Tennessee into Baptist as a as a group. Um, I, I, my, I suppose my official title now is the chief scientist for the Baptist Memorial Healthcare Corporation. I'm also director of our multidisciplinary thoracic uh, program. Well, welcome. Um, you know, thank you for for working with Baptist for so long, and you know, you've both done great work for us. Um, but today, we wanted to dive in a little bit into the Mid South Miracle Program. Uh, what can you tell us about the program? What are the aims of the program, and and, and what's taking place right now? Yeah, the Mid South Miracle comes out of um, uh, basically making lemonade from lemons. Um, we happen to be in the Mid-South, right at the heart of the Lung Cancer Mortality Belt of America. Uh, so that leaderboard statewide is um, Kentucky, Mississippi, Arkansas, West Virginia, Tennessee. So we're, we cover four of the top five states uh, for lung cancer mortality in the United States. Uh, with that in mind, and bearing um, in mind also that we are we were falling farther and farther behind, uh, I think most people are aware that lung cancer is emerging as a success story, the incidence mortality going down uh, year by year in the country. But along with that, we were falling further and further behind. There was a wider gap. We decided that we had to use a different approach to try to narrow that gap, and that's the essence of the Mid-South Miracle. I'm sure Nick can tell you a little bit more. Yeah, so the the really the theme or, or summary of the Mid-South Miracle Project, the, the way that we describe it is our, our goal as a healthcare system is to eliminate lung cancer stigma and mortality for all people. Um, so that, that that is our our stated objective. Uh, we know that that's a very uh, a very grand goal, uh, certainly one worth pursuing. Um, and so our, our first step to to make that a little bit more manageable of, over the next ten years, our specific target 
is to increase the rate uh, at which those trends that Ray described were, were decreasing lung cancer incidence and mortality. We'd like to increase the rate of that decline by at least 25%. So if we accomplish that, the, that widening gap um, will we'll slow down and eventually stop and, and put us on pace with the rest of the country. So um, that's our, our very specific goal. When we started, we said, um, you know, our, our goal is to eliminate lung cancer mortality. We, we wanted lung, uh, lung cancer death to go away. Uh, one of the things that we learned uh, and early in the process and that we continue to see is that stigma is a piece that we have to address in order to get there. Um, there's a, a lot of uh, implicit and explicit despair and hopelessness around lung cancer. Uh, and so we want, we knew that in order to reach that goal of eliminating lung cancer mortality, we also had to establish a foundation uh, of hope in, in the face of what is often despair, that um, lung cancer doesn't have to be a death sentence, that there is a lot that we can do to eliminate this problem. And so we want to tackle the stigma problem at the same time, because we know that if, if we don't do that, we won't be able to reach our goal of eliminating lung cancer mortality. Tell us what components make up the Mid-South Miracle Program. Yeah, so we, we're taking a very intentional program-based approach to the problem, understanding that it is such a wicked, complex problem. If we are not super organized, um, we, we would be doomed to fail. So we, we take uh, our, our framework as the population impact pyramid, uh, looking at what would give us the biggest impact for the amount of expense, uh, whether it's human resources or money or time uh, spent. And, and at the base of it, um, we believe is tobacco control. Um, and then right underneath it, right above it, is early detection. And we have two approaches to early detection. I think everybody increasingly is hearing about screening healthy people who have a certain history that suggests they're at high risk, essentially based on age and smoking history uh, for annual low-dose screening CT scans. So we're doing that. But we're also doing something innovative in our incidental lung nodule program, where um, we say essentially anybody who gets a CAT scan done or any kind of radiologic study that shows a lesion um, gets an organized approach to triage their risk. And from that, we're able to find lung cancer early in people who are not actually participating in screening. The purpose of um, early detection, of course, is to be able to get people diagnosed early enough to be able to get the right treatment. So the next program is the multidisciplinary decision making, where we're trying to make sure the right patient gets the right care at the right time um, and so on. Um, Right after that is ensuring that those who get fortunate enough to um, be able to undergo surgery get the best quality surgery possible to give them the best possible outcome. So we have an intervention that we have tested and proven. And then the other is to ensure that the pathology evaluation gets done right, including biomarker testing, which is a big effort that we're making to use to personalize the care that our patients get. And then the final component is making access to tomorrow's treatment possible today. And the way we do that is through our clinical trials program. 
So those seven specific programs compose the Mid-South Miracle. That's terrific. Um, and so you, you were talking earlier about stigma that exists around lung cancer, and I was hoping to dive into that a little bit more and how how y'all are trying to overcome it and also its effects on on patients agreeing to do lung cancer screening as well as um, you know how it may affect um, your efforts to reduce smoking yeah sure um it's uh it, it's a very tricky problem um and you know we we see stigma in a lot of different ways um you know it it, it does present um you know with with patients uh, themselves um, it, it presents with caregivers often times, uh, un unfortunately, uh, but it, increasingly we see this less. It, it does pre present, um, you know, at, at the healthcare system level or, or even with, uh, with uh, medical providers. Um, and, and to your point, Jake, it, you know, it, it really it does kind of come down to um, the, the smoking issue, right? Um, so uh, there, there are those who, who, when they hear they have a lung cancer diagnosis and they have a history of smoking, they, you know, they feel like they deserve this or um, and, and th they don't deserve to, to fight against lung cancer um, or, you, you know, caregivers may, may feel that way about, about their loved one. Physicians, you know, may feel like, well, you know, listen, if, if, if my patient still wants to smoke, then, then what can I do about that? So uh, it's, it's, a really, it's a really tricky problem to address. Um, and the way that we've gone about it is, you know, through a, a, couple, of, a couple of different avenues. One, um, you know, there's, there's an education component. Um, for for all people uh, to think about, um, you know what, and, and measure what is actually happening in lung cancer. Ray mentioned earlier when he was describing, you know, the, the programs that we're starting to see a lot of good news around lung cancer. And so making sure um, that we educate ourselves, that we educate our patients, we educate our providers about uh, treatments that are available, about new discoveries that have come out. Um, there's a lot of opportunities for us to educate ourselves and understand that lung cancer doesn't have to be a death sentence. Um, as far as it goes with, with smoking, um, one thing that I, I think we've learned as a country is that fear uh, motivates for a little while, but it's not sustainable. And a, a lot of our efforts um, to scare people uh, into quitting smoking um, may have had some temporary benefit, but in the long run, uh, they've really been harmful because they've promoted that stigma um, that we continue to fight against. And so, uh, um, it, you know, in addition to education and to, in addition to engaging in research and showing all of the things that we can do to help people with lung cancer, um, it's really critical that, that one, we uh, help people understand the benefits of smoking in a way that doesn't promote stigma. So, um, you know, we, uh, Part of the education piece is identifying the language that we use when we speak um, to our patients. Um, so we have joined with organizations across the country in drafting a, a language guide for how to how to uh, speak responsibly about people who smoke. Um, you know, so it's it's a little more bulky to refer to people who smoke um, rather than historically we refer to them as smokers. Um, but one thing that patients have told us is that, you know, they're, they would like to be seen as, you know, a mother, a father, a son, a daughter, and not just as a smoker. Um, and so adopting that language to communicate to our patients that we care about them and we see them as people first and not as smokers um, is really beneficial. But then also actually developing a tobacco cessation program um, where one of our fundamental principles is that we're not going to try and scare people into quitting. 
we don't want to shame people. We want to we want to help all of us understand that quitting smoking is incredibly hard. Uh, most people don't do it the first time, and that's okay. Um, even a reduction in their tobacco consumption is a step in the right direction, and that as as long as patients want to continue to try and quit, that we're going to provide the resources to help them. That it's um, it's not just going to be one thing, um, you know, and we're going to try and create a, a model that we put patients into, but we want to offer as many tools and possible interventions as possible so that anyone who wants help to quit smoking, that they know that Baptist is a place they can come to get that help without any fear or shame attached. Yeah, Jake, so as just, we... Sorry, Amanda. Uh, uh, go, yeah, ahead. No, go ahead. I, I was just going to chime up with two things. One is to help people understand that um, um, stigma blinds us. Um, the bottom line is, if you have lungs, you can get lung cancer. I, I learned that from one of my most impressive patients, a 30-something-year-old mother of two, lifelong never user of cigarette tobacco who happened to have lung cancer. And, and that group is some of the fastest rising uh, subsets of lung cancer patients. So it's important for us not to blind ourselves. Right? And then the second is um, what Nick alluded to, I want to emphasize. Um, lung cancer is not a death story anymore. You know, 20 years ago, if you said lung cancer, it meant imminent death. That is not the case anymore. We have all these examples and fast growing examples of 10 year and more uh, survivors of stage four lung cancer. It takes purposeful identification, management, and guidance to be able to get that, but it is available. And I think the more people become aware of that, the less likely they are to stigmatize themselves or their loved ones or their patients uh, who happen to have lung cancer. Wow, that really speaks to the miracle in the title of the program. Um, so as we dive down into the um, the different approaches, so we talked about smoking cessation. Let's talk about screening. Yeah, that's a big one. Uh, that's a so the the one of the biggest challenges with lung cancer, of course, has been that by the time you knew it was there, it was here, there, and everywhere. So almost half the patients uh, traditionally, by the time they found out they had lung cancer, they had stage four, which at the time was uniformly incurable um, and, and uh, associated with a dismal outcome, again, decades ago. Um, one of the biggest, most exciting developments in lung cancer came from something called the National Lung Screening Trial which enrolled over 60,000 Americans into screening with a CAT scan, a low-dose CT scan once a year, or for the other group, a chest x-ray once a year. And that result came out in 2011, hands down. A low-dose CT scan once a year flat out beats doing a chest x-ray. Since 2011, we have had category one evidence that nobody, nobody should get a chest x-ray 
because they smoke and we're worried that they may have lung cancer. All such patients who are eligible should get a low-dose CT scan once a year. It not only reduces the risk of dying of lung cancer, it actually reduces the risk of dying, period, so-called all-cause mortality. First screening test that has ever been demonstrated to do that. Not mammography, not even pap smears, and certainly not colonoscopies. Here, available, um, the challenge is less than 5% of eligible people have had access. And one of the big opportunities we have here is to work collaboratively with our teammates in BMG across primary care and the various aspects of care delivery in the healthcare system in the region to bring this opportunity to our population. But the second thing, um, uh, the second approach we have taken is really innovative and we're very proud of that. It's our incidental lung nodule program. We happen to start those two programs about the same time. What's the difference between them? The screening program says you have to be a certain age. Now it will soon be 50 to 80 years old, and you have to have a certain history of smoking, either smoking now or if you still, if you quit, you, you quit within 15 years. Okay. The other program says we don't really care what your history is. If somebody happened to do a scan of any part of your body for any reason, and it happened to show part of your lung and in it was a lesion. Uh, we want to bring you in and try to make sure that that lesion is not going to turn out to be a cancer. You fast forward from 2015 when we started the two programs in tandem to 2021, uh, September last year, when we most recently looked at the people in it. The screening program had about about 7,000 people uh, in it. The nodule program had about 25,000 people in it. And for every one lung cancer patient we had identified through screening, we had identified six lung cancer patients through the nodule program. And the most fascinating thing was fewer than half of the people diagnosed with lung cancer through the nodule program would have qualified for screening. Mm. So all those lifelong people who never used cigarette tobacco, for example, who would never qualify for screening, all those young people in their 40s and uh, early 50s who had not been eligible for screening, we were finding cancers in them. And the interesting thing was the distribution of stage was identical. 60% of the patients with lung cancer in both programs had stage one or two, which is compared to 15%, which is what you typically expect um, in, in population series. So these two programs we're doing hand in hand and, uh, and, and are, are really unique in the Baptist healthcare system. That's great. Um, and so you covered this a little bit already, uh, but I would like you to dive into it a little bit more. You know, how do patients get enrolled in the program? So, uh, you know, I would assume you go through the lung cancer screening or the lung nodule program, but can they also be uh, referred uh, by other physicians into it? And then tell us a little bit about the journey of the patient through the program 
Uh, what does that care look like? Who makes up that team? Do you want to talk about enrollment? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, there there are multiple ways uh, to uh, to en enroll in a lung cancer screening program. Uh, primarily, we see it we see it coming through the primary care physician. Um, so, as as patients are you know coming in for their annual checkups, um, Baptist is making a, a, a very concerted effort to make sure that we identify those patients on the front end. Um, that we're uh, aware of their smoking history so we can determine whether or not they're eligible. Uh, and then, um, you know, the expectation is that the, the provider, you know, it could be a primary care physician, it could be a pulmonologist, could be a cardiologist, it could be a, any number of specialties. If you have a patient who's eligible, um, what's required to order the scan is what's, what's called shared decision making. Um, so a conversation has to take place between the provider and the patient where the provider explains uh, the benefits and, and the risks of, of screening as we understand them to make sure that the patient has an awareness that um, the benefit of screening is not having a single scan. And, you know, if, you're, if your scan doesn't show anything, then you're fine. The, the true benefit of screening is annual surveillance. So it's not just come once, check and see, and if you don't hear anything, then you're, you're good. It's make sure you come back next year and the year after and the year after. That's, that's really when we see the great benefit of screening. So um, it could come from a conversation that is uh, initiated by the provider, but also patients who are aware of the eligibility requirements. If you're in that age range of, of 50 to 80, if um, you have smoked at least a, a pack a day for 15 uh, for 15 years or have quit recently, um, we have uh, multiple ways to, to contact Baptist directly. Uh, there's a, a questionnaire you could fill out on our website. Um, we advertise it on, on social media. So we, you know, we have many patients who self-refer and say, hey, I, I think I'm eligible. I'd, I'd like to talk to someone about this and I'd, I'd like to make sure I'm eligible and get screened. So patients come to us that way as well. And, and just quickly, is this uh, limited to a certain geographic area within the Baptist system or is it just, a, for instance, is it just Memphis or can they be referred from other locations? No, uh, we we have, uh, I think we have now, I'm, I'm probably going to get this wrong, so I'll say 16 or 17 sites across the healthcare system that are open for lung cancer screening. We've got several more that are in the accreditation process to be able to do that. Uh, so, you know, when we talk about at Baptist, you know, right care at the right place, um, you know, the right place is not a single place, but it's all of the places. So uh, essentially our approach is if we have a place with a CT scanner that can be accredited, that's going to be open for lung cancer screening. So we see patients uh, come from, uh, uh, you know, from Arkansas all the way down to, you know, South Mississippi, all the way up to, to West Tennessee. So patients are, are coming in from all over our catchment area. And, we, and we, we also see patients come from outside of our catchment area. So we have lung screening patients from Alabama, Kentucky, uh, and, and all over the U.S. So anyone who's eligible and happens to come to Baptist for care, uh, we can figure out a place close to you to get that done. And Jake, I think one thing to emphasize is a, a key philosophy behind the Mid-South miracle is to make care uniformly high quality everywhere across the healthcare system. So our goal is there should be no determinant of what happens to somebody on the basis of where they are. It's the same healthcare system. Uh, th that is our fundamental ambition. And, and your question about um, where exactly would these uh, access to screening be available, it helps me 
remember to make that point. Um, our nodule program um, is also being spread out across the system. One vitally important component, um, you can't just have a shop with a scanner and tell everybody rolling uh, will do your picture and you and something will happen. Hopefully the right thing happens. The hard about the hardest part of this is making sure that when that test is done, the right decisions get made. Because you can imagine we are in the histoplasma belt of America. The vast majority of people who have a spot in the lungs will not have lung cancer. So a core part of a successful program is to have multidisciplinary decision making, starting right from the point of the primary care provider ordering the test in the right patient, ordering the right test for the right patient, and then the radiologist using the right terminology to help us identify if it's a screen patient, which what is the score using the nomenclature, uh, the long grad score, or if it was not a screening test, we're using we're asking them to use a certain micro text that allows us use Epic to capture the uh, the patient into a queue that our navigators then use a an evidence based guideline to triage patients, in. and then you have the pulmonologists, radiologists, and the general thoracic surgeons talking among themselves on each individual patient. So that part is vital. Um, otherwise, we would wind up hurting more people than we help. Some great points. So when we say low-dose CT, how is that different from any other CT that I may order? Great point, Amanda. So a low-dose CT scan is, so one of the concerns about CT is that it is radiation exposure. For example, there are all these estimates that say if you took, um, if you did um, a CAT scan on, on 200 um, women age 20, you would actually, because of that radiation exposure, cause cancer in one of the 180 people in that group. So there is some inherent danger that we have to be aware of. Remember, when we're talking about screening, you're talking about healthy people. They look healthy, they feel good, but you know that they're over 50 years, and we know that there was a time when they used cigarette tobacco. So, so we want to make sure we don't hurt them by exposing them to more radiation that we need to be able to read and identify a lesion. And so low-dose CTs are deliberately calibrated to be at the low end of the radiation exposure. The, it is about a tenth of the dose of a standard CT scan in terms of radi uh, radiation exposure, about three times what you get from a plain chest X-ray. So 
you know, I, I think you went through um, and told us a lot about the the team that makes up this program and and the benefits of the patients that are able to be enrolled. But uh, can you tell us just in a little bit more detail? Um, yeah, I think you said it started around 2015, but what has the program been able to accomplish so far? Yeah, uh, that, that's that's a great point, and and certainly something that we try very hard to to be intentional about um, when we talk about the Mid South Miracle. Uh, yes, the Mid South Miracle is is you know fundamentally a project. That project is made up of the seven programs, um, but you know at at the core of it, it's not a it's not project, it's not program, it's people. Um, and so, in addition to the population science. Um, that kind of uh, is the foundation of our understanding of the problem and what we need to do to address it. You know, we talk. We also talk about implementation science, um, which is, you know, how are we going to take the things that we know we can do and disseminate that across our healthcare system? There's a third science that we're very intentional about, which is team science, um, because we understand that at the heart of at the heart of our programs, we're only as successful as the people um, who are, are are really the the heart of of those programs. So. Um, we're very intentional. We we try to talk a lot about about team science and apply team science principles to the work that we do. Um, you know, so it's, uh, people are hearing from myself and from Ray, but the reality is there are literally hundreds of people um, who are involved in the Mid South Miracle. There's you know the we mentioned the primary care physicians at the front line for lung cancer screening, um, but you know a lot of times whether or not we know a patient is eligible is dependent on the information that the MA or the person at the front desk gets from the patients when they come through. And so the MAs and the front desk uh, workers uh, across our healthcare system are are part of the Mid South Miracle. Um, you know if they're engaged in lung cancer screening or they have a pulmonary nodule identified, the radiologist and the radiology department are a part of that. Um, you know, the specialists who care for people with lung diseases, the, the pulmonologists, but also, you know, the lung cancer specialists, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, the pathologists, they're, they're all a part of the team. And then really the, the critical part are the, the staff whose day-to-day -day roles are to manage the workflow coming through uh, these programs. So our, our nurses, our nurse navigators, um, we use intake navigators to, to supplement a, a lot of, you know, just the day-to-day -day heavy uh, communication piece that comes along with that. Um, those are all, those are really the, the critical people at, at the heart of making sure that our teams operate the way that they need. So um, I, I do especially want to give um, you know recognition to our nurse navigators across the healthcare system. Um, we meet regularly with them and and review uh, the, all of the good work that they're doing. Um, you know, in Columbus, Mississippi, and Oxford, Mississippi, and Jonesboro, Arkansas, Jackson, Mississippi, and then of course. Um, we don't we don't rely on uh, just anecdotal evidence uh, to uh, to show us the benefit of the work that we're doing. Um, our our research team is really key uh, in helping us understand exactly what's going on in all of our in all of our programs across the healthcare system. So we've got uh, data managers and project managers and research coordinators who are are all involved uh, every day in, in abstracting work that allows us to provide an objective measurement of what all of those clinical care team members are doing. So it, it's literally hundreds of people um, engaged every day in work to make the Mid-South Miracle happen. Uh, and we're, we're very intentional uh, about um, hardwiring that team-based thinking into all of our programs because we understand that it's, it's not just one one person or one place, but everyone working together in concert. So uh, a, a lot of our work and developing our programs is, is really about maintaining alignment across the healthcare system, 
and building out standardization as much as we can so that we can maintain that high quality expectation that Ray was talking about earlier. So you spoke to biomarker testing and and personalization of treatment. Can you can you tell us more about what that means? Oh, that's big, Amanda. That is big. So lung cancer is not lung cancer is not lung cancer any longer. Um, Twenty five years ago, we would talk about small cell and non-small cell lung cancer. And the reason why we did it was it was simple, but the real truth about it was there wasn't that much we could do about it, okay? So, so you fast forward now, and just about every six months, there is a new FDA-approved drug that is based on identifying a small subset of patients with lung cancer that you have to use a biomarker to identify. So a biomarker is sort of like a lock that a key, a specific key can open. And so we now have about 12 different subsets of non-small cell lung cancers that require, that are exquisitely sensitive to a very specific type of treatment that requires for that benefit, the presence of a specific type of gene mutation or a specific level of protein expression. So the biomarker is the pathway into the chamber of personalized treatment that gives you things like, well, the aggregate five-year survival of stage four lung cancer in the dark ages when it was all non-small cell lung cancer was 4%. There are subsets of lung cancer, such as ALK mutated lung cancer, for which with a pill that you take once a day, the five-year survival rate is in excess of 60%. 4%, 60%. The challenge is that group with the ALK mutated lung cancer, that is anywhere from 2 to 7% of the whole population of lung cancers. There is no way to look at somebody and know that they have ALK mutated lung cancer. You just have to test for it, do the biomarker test. Because the problem is if the person does not have that mutation and you gave them that pill, well, the cancer will laugh all the way to the grave. So what we are having to do now is to help all of us as a community, patients, their doctors, third party payers, our healthcare systems, recognize that this need to find the right patient with the right biomarker so you can give them the right treatment starts right from the beginning and it is going to continue to fragment lung cancer. It's not going to be just 11, 12 subsets. If you come back to me five years from now, I can almost guarantee you, we will have more than 25 subsets of lung cancer. So the need for biomarker testing is only going to grow. So one of our challenges as a healthcare system is 
how do we change our processes so that the patient and her doctor can know quickly when there is a pathway they need to go down for treatment. And that's going to require us to get biomarker testing right as close to the front edge as possible. So it sounds like y'all are doing things with this genetic testing and clinical trials that you mentioned earlier that you know previously would have required a referral to a major cancer center. Is that correct? Oh, we're very proud of that. Yes. All healthcare should be local. All healthcare. If you ask a patient, would you like to jump on an airplane and go somewhere? Or would you like to go across the road to your friendly neighborhood healthcare system? I, I don't think um, you know people would give you answers differently than what you would give. Even those of means who could jump on an airplane and go somewhere far away. So what we want to do is bring world-class care to our population as close to home as possible which is part of the reason why we said uniformly high quality care delivery across the healthcare system. Don't wanna to have to get from Golden Triangle to Memphis just because there's something unique going on in Memphis. What we want as much as possible is to make whatever is unique about BMH uh, Memphis also unique in BMH Golden Triangle Columbus. I think uh, I've definitely learned a lot from from you guys uh, today on the show. What can you tell us about uh, new developments and, and the future of the program going forward? So I, I want to brag on our team, um, you, you know, a little bit. And that team starts right from the top, um, Mr. Little, all the way through our senior-most leadership all the way to our frontline staff and, and our population. Here's why. Um, in the last 10, 11 years that we've been working on components of this, this Mid-South Miracle didn't start overnight. It's been um, actually 17 years of toiling in the dark. Okay, And then in, in the last 11 years, really working here within Baptist, um, we have done work that not only has excited us, but has fired the imagination of the global community of lung cancer advocates, um, stakeholders. The work that we have done on surgical quality has changed healthcare policy in America and is changing the, the understanding of surgical quality globally. This is homegrown research that we have done here um, that has been supported by the healthcare system, by the Baptist Foundation, by the National Institutes of Health through very generous research grants that we have received. Uh, the program over the last decade has received by now well in excess of $25 million in federal funding from the National Institutes of Health and the Patient-Centered uh, Patient Research Institute. The latest thing is that with the really careful databases that we have constructed um, with our uh, surgical quality program, with our multidisciplinary program, 
and with our fast growing what we call deluge program uh, the, the 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 acronym deluge is detecting early lung cancer and we the full name is deluge in the mississippi delta detecting early lung cancer in the mississippi delta that data set which is the combination of our screening and our nodule programs is already in excess of 35,000 persons and is growing very fast. With these three data sets, we now approach the healthcare system once again and said, you know, we got all this really wonderful information that has allowed us to do really innovative work that has transformed understanding of cancer care delivery. Wouldn't it be wonderful if somehow we also had the tissue to go with that information so we could partner with research labs around the country, academic and commercial, to try to discover the mysteries at the heart of lung cancer. We just did that last week. Less than two hours after we approached the board for a generous sum to let us stick our toe in the water, came an email saying, you got it. That's leadership right there. I think we want to be thankful that we have such insightful, far-seeing leaders who have been willing and able to champion this amazing cause that we're tilting against now. Very well said. Um, definitely been very impressed with, with what y'all have been able to present today and uh, certainly encouraging for the future of the Mid-South. Uh, any last words you want to leave with the medical staff uh, before we wrap up the show? Come join us. It's an exciting ride. <laughs> Incredible work. Incredible. Well, thank you, and, and thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Right Care at Baptist. Remember, if you follow the link in the show notes, you can redeem this episode for CME credit.